Hi everyone, welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So today's episode is a departure from our usual format in that we're going to be listening in on a panel discussion that followed our 2010 annual UTSA Neurosciences Institute Research Symposium that took place on April 9th, 2010. This year's theme was neural patterning in the CNS. The day brought together an eclectic group of researchers who look at early determinants of cell fate at various levels of the CNS. Have a listen as they introduce themselves. We have with us today uh, Goichi Miyoshi. Hi, I'm Goichi. Of NYU. Uh, I'm postdoc in NYU Goldfisher Lab. We have Raj Awatramani. Hi, Raj Awatramani. Uh, I'm an assistant professor at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Our own Gary Galfo. Hello. I'm Pashka Rakic. I'm at uh, Yale University, Department of Neurobiology and East Kali Institute of Neuroscience, uh, and I'm interested in developmental neurobiology and in general and particularly cerebral cortex. And Jeremy Dyson. Hi, I'm Jeremy Dyson, uh, Assistant Professor, NYU School of Medicine, Howard Hughes Medical Institute. As usual, we have our Institute Director Charlie Wilson with us, and we actually also have an audience today who may be interjecting periodically. Hello, hey. audience. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Sama. So um, I just want to start with a really basic question um, about what it means to define cell identity. Um, many of us who are not developmental biologists identify cells and circuits based on function or anatomy, but as we get beyond gross categories of sensory, motor, and interneurons, function isn't necessarily in register with identity stamps that are based on embryonic origins or molecular markers. Um, do you guys see a future in which we will define functional circuits and behavior solely from genetic lineage or gene cluster perspective. Any thoughts on that? You mean how cells become different from each other and become individual? Yes, or rather, yes. Well, in evolution, before you have multicellular organism, each cell reproduce and make another organism unicellular. And something happened, probably the most important event in evolution that two daughter cells and the white were different. And that's how start multicellular organism, that's how you can make kidney, that's how you can make different cortical area or substantia nigra, dopamine neurons, because they are at one point different from the other cells. So that's all lead to the cell division, birth of new progenitors. So can I ask the question another way? I think it's the same question. If you go through Cajal's histology, you can maybe count up four or five hundred cell types based on somatodendritic morphology and some axonal morphology. And maybe that number isn't quite right because I haven't ever actually done that exercise. But it's in the hundreds, I would guess. And uh, so how many cell types are there? Are, will we ever make a catalog that has every cell type listed and all the definitive characteristics for that cell type, including its physiological properties and all of that stuff, or is it going to end up being a, a blurrier world than that for cell types? I think people will come to an agreement at some point. I think right now it's a little bit too early, because I think if you ask Cajal how many times the motor neurons are, you would probably say there's only one. There's the motor neuron. Um, you know, there's, there's splitters and groupers. You know, the groupers would might, you know, in an extreme case, say that there's only three kinds of neurons in the nervous system, you know, sensory, motor, and interneuron. The splitters might say... You know, there are hundreds of thousands, you know, maybe as many as the number of neurons that actually exist. So 
I think at some point people will come to an agreement once um, we have a firm idea of what the physiological properties are of a majority of the cells in the nervous system as well as their gene expression profiles. Um, but I would guess that you know it's probably on the order of hundreds of thousands. But so for people who study physiological properties of cells, you know, you, you end up getting cells that are partway in between. And then people like that, that's people like me, uh, hold out some hope that the people who study genetic markers, genetic expression in cells, will be able to pin it down a lot better. But and there's a kind of evidence maybe they can. Do you think that's... Well, well first of all, when one talks about... Uh, uh, cell issue we should define what we are talking about when you say nervous system, which nervous system? Obviously, nematodes have 302 neurons. They cannot have more than 302 uh, type of cells. Yeah. But uh, a mouse is different, but humans probably have more than mouse. So depend uh, on species. We cannot just say uh, in general for... When you asked question, I didn't well, know whether you meant human, or sure. because be Cajal was working in human. But I'd be happy with the mouse uh, as an answer, just to, as a proof of principle, yeah. but uh, I'd be grateful if you could give it, me the answer for human. There is this person who is not, virtually not here. His name is Henry Markham. He's in Switzerland now. And he, he tried to define those cells and had a very large number. So it's dependent definition. If cell is a little different than the other, you can say it's different type. Or you can say same type. So interneurons one type, but you already mentioned there are interneurons this way, this way. There are those which express uh, NPOI or, or express, uh, say, B, CB, cannabinoid, one receptor, only 1% of them. So you could say they are different type of cells, but many people consider this all in interneurons, one back. So, so I think that answer says, no, you're no better off with cellular markers than you are with physiological properties, that, or with somatodendritic morphology, because that's the same problem we have in these, <coughs> using these other methods. You say, here's a cell with five dendrites, each of which branch twice, and then here's one that's got four dendrites, each of one branch twice, and then some people say it's a different cell type, some people say it's the same. Or, here's a cell that fires a rebound really large rebound that lasts for 500 milliseconds. Here's another cell fires a rebound with the same stimulus, only lasts 250 milliseconds. Some people say those are the same cell type, and some will say they're different. Now, what I was hoping was that transcription factors or something would be cleaner and, than that. And I think what you just said is, I'm in a dream world if I think that, that they're basically all going to be like that, where there's going to still be lumpers and splitters arguing. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think, think so. I think if you're using physiology, though, you have to, especially if you're dealing with uh, live animals, um, there is, you know, there are non-genetic influences on physiological properties, and so it's sort of a philosophical question of what you mean identity. But when you say identity, I mean a physiological property of a neuron is part of its, of its identity, but it doesn't necessarily have to be driven by um, genetic program mediated through transcription factors. I think, you know. Dendritic tree? How about that? Those could be, I mean, those could be based on where that neuron ends up and what other neurons it forms connections with. I mean, there are examples where just the levels of the transcription factor, so whether it expresses high versus low, defines how branched its dendrites are. So even with the transcription factors, there's sort of a gray area where there's graded properties. And so you could say, well, 
you know, all of these neurons are the same uh, with respect to the expression of this factor, but then they become different based on whether or not they express high or low levels. So I, I assume the same is probably true with physiological properties where you see, you know, sort of graded properties. And I think it's depending on the researcher in terms of whether or not they really appreciate that population so much that they can parse apart those individual components and say that that's something you see from animal to animal. And I think part of it is, you know, if it's consistent amongst all animals of the species, it's likely to be representative of a specific identity as opposed to um, things that vary based on the animal's experience. And so getting back to the, the branching pattern of, uh, of dendrites, we use different animal models and systems to try to uh, make comparisons. So, for example, um, uh, a really great system studied in Drosophila, um, whose pattern um, is, is regulated by both morphogens and transcription factors, is the, uh, the trachea, the branching pattern of the trachea. And I think uh, uh, the branching patterns that you see in dendrites, those uh, uh, may be um, either regulated by signaling modules or transcription factors. Although we see, you know, from if, if you're an electrophysiologist, you'll, you'll look at uh, different neurons with different branching patterns. I would imagine that uh, cell A and B with different branching patterns have a different molecular signature. And if you knew the molecular uh, signature for A, you can always, uh, I guess this is my wild guess, con uh, consistently reproduce five branches versus seven. And if you knew the molecular signature for the seven, you can... Uh, um, so if I denervate a part of the neuron and it loses a branch, have its signaling, will its signaling have changed uh, correspondingly? I mean, is that why the cell loses a branch? I don't it know. hasn't really become a new cell type, I don't know. Well, maybe it has. I don't know. That's my question. My view on this subject is actually, to getting back to your original question, is I think that genetic uh, tracing, like which is also presented today, some of it, uh, is actually going to help us a lot. Uh, and it, but it's not going to be the, it's not going to cure all the things that you would like, but it's going to take us to a level that's better than, for example, the current atlases, you know, where you just draw out a region and say this is a particular neuron type or a particular cluster. And that diversity is going to be revealed through genetic uh, lineage approach, approaches as well as functional manipulations of those lineages. Now, whether all questions are answered by that, probably not. You know, but it will take us certainly to a more defined, discrete level. At least that's what I hope. That's why I'm driving my lab in that direction. Yeah, in terms of the issues of the cell life, right? I think the genetic programs will determine the potential. Let's say when we analyze the intrinsic properties of the, of the programming expressing fast spiking interneurons, of course, if we inject current, they have potential to fire fast. And we know those cells are the population involved in uh, V4 inhibition uh, at the layer 4, uh, when, where dynamic action is innervating. But those are all potential. And ultimately, I think, in vivo, you have to manipulate these cells independently and prove what does that does affect the circuit. And if you really go down to each cell type, for example, we have in hippocampus, the place cells, grid cells, and each cell fire at different place. So they can be called as maybe different cell type. 
in some sense, right? So, I don't know. I think the genetic programs, um, majority of them driven by transcription factors, only determines the potential. And there should be non-autonomous uh, effect and environment determines where cells should be hooked up and how they should play in the network. And I think we only have very few idea for that at this point. But I go back to what I said first, that you have to define what you mean by type. Because if you just generally type, there's interneuron. But if you go chemical difference, then you will have much more. But if you go watch each one performs, it's each cell performs different thing. You can say each cell is different type. If you define it that way, that it's fine. you will have recording from that cell, and next cell will give a different result. So it's different. That was that definitely carrying too, well, yeah. too far. So we don't know what actually we mean by by type. Yeah, I think one of the, the big advantages of having the genetic approaches is that, you know, for example, if there are 17 different classes of cortical interneurons and you're able to mark individual ones, you have a way of addressing function, which I don't think you necessarily have by just doing physiological studies. So as far as I know, of, of those 17 cortical in inhibitory interneurons, um, there's very little known about what they actually do, other than obviously inhibit. Um, but how they actually operate in terms of functional circuits, I think, is still somewhat unclear. Yeah, they do different things in visual cortex than in auditory. Yes, sure. So all of you look at very um, temporally and spatially uh, different uh, elements of, of neural development, but many of the molecules used to specify, for example, cell type and later the synapse formation or axon pathfinding, and you know the very early stages of embryonic patterning, they're the same molecules. So I'm, as an outsider, and when I first was trying to learn this stuff years ago, I, I kind of always wondered how is it that developmental programs ensure control over all these very unrelated, what seem to be spatially and temporally unrelated events using the very same signals. And it, for those of you who obviously spend a lot of time thinking about this, do you see this, is this just an accident of evolution, um, just trying to reuse molecules, or is it an integral design element that maybe ensures, I know I shouldn't use the word design, but that, that maybe ensures later specificity that comes full circle? I think there, there are really two important layers of regulation that sort of impose the ability of neurons to respond to signaling molecules, particular in different ways. Uh, there's the chromatin status of the genome. So certain genes are immediately left in, because of their history, are in a position where they can never be induced by a signaling molecule. Um, and that has to do with the way the chromatin's organized. So the same cell um, can respond to different signals, such as, for example, retinoic acid, differently at different stages of development. So in the spinal cord, um, motor neurons are initially specified as a class by uh, the actions of retinoic acid, but then later um, their subtype diversity is controlled by a later set of retinoid signals. And presumably that's partially the chromatin status, but also the other factors that become induced during that process of differentiation. So they're, you know, we always kind of focus on one particular transcription factor in a particular cell type, but in reality 
um, the genes that a, a neuron expresses as a function of the combinations of factors. Um, and unless we have a really, I mean, unless people can sort of pay attention to the name of all these transcription factors, um, you know, an individual cell might express, you know, a dozen or so different transcription factors. And it's those combinations and how they assemble on different target genes that defines its sort of unique intrinsic properties. So, you know, one example of this is, you know, there's a transcription factor called PAC6, which is conserved in, in fly and invertebrates. And in the spinal cord, it basically controls dorsal ventral patterning, but in the fly, it has this very important role in specifying eye development. And the way it sort of acts differentially in those two different, very different kinds of, of cells is that um, it's really just acting with other factors, and it's by forming these specific combinations that can induce the different fates in the different cell types. So in terms of the language, it always seems like the morphogen is the inducing factor. It's sort of the driver in the system. But I think that's actually... It's, we're finding that to be not the case, and that repressor, that, rep that negative feedback and repression in the target cells themselves are a pretty active force in defining the way spatial gradients develop. And um, I mean, is that is that true? Is, is that just? Yeah. So I mean, I think it, it, it a little bit depends on the time of development. So when neurons are progenitors, um, their transcription factors are initially induced by these signaling molecules. A lot of those factors that are induced are actually transcriptional repressors. Um, and so there, there's one idea about the way you generate different cell types in the nervous system is basically through what's called derepression. So it's the genes that are not repressed that, by virtue of not being repressed, are activated, and that's how a cell acquires a specific identity. And that's occurring largely at the progenitor stage, where you're defining different classes of neurons, so interneurons versus sensory neurons versus motor neurons. Um, and then post-mitotically, there's another set of factors that come into play. So when a cell leaves the cell cycle, there's a transition between the early progenitor transcription factors and a set of late post-mitotic factors. And those generally act as activators. So they'll activate things like axon guidance uh, molecules, um, neurotransmitter pathways, and that's sort of the, you know, how the neuron connects and what kind of physiological properties it has. Um, but there again, there's also repression involved because um, the way that the post-mitotic factors are often um, regulated in terms of their patterns of expression is by repressing each other. So there is a common theme of repression, but it's generally occurring um, in a cell autonomous manner, whereas the signaling gradients are, are sort of acting as the initial inducer of the repressors. Yeah, I think that's a great topic. We were talking about uh, kind of ground states earlier. Um, for example, in the, in the hindbrain, and uh, a couple of us study the Hox genes, um, there are uh, eight segments, rhombomeres one through eight, and it turns out that in rhombomere one, it's uh, um, uh, it lacks uh, an important uh, transcription factor that's involved in segmental identity, the Hox genes. Whereas in uh, rhombomeres two, all the way to the caudal spinal cord, you have this uh, nested expression patterns of, of Hox genes. And it turns out if you remove the Hox genes or its uh, um, uh, cofactors, you can convert rhombomeres two all the way down into this ground state like uh, Rambamir 1, suggesting that the identity of segments or structures in the nervous system is a consequence of this repressive mechanism. And so um, <clears throat> the next question that I ask is, you know, you have, uh, we talked about the cerebral cortex and its development. How do you get, uh, um, you know, these specialized, uh, how many Rodman's areas are there, 52 or something like that? How do you get uh, these aerial, aerialization? Is it through these uh, um, 
repressive mechanisms based on a uh, ground state or a tabula rasa? Well, I think most people <coughs> who study cortical development this day believe in that they are specified already at the time of cell division in the proliferative ventricular subventricular zone. Therefore, uh, historically, that would be a protomap, not tabular rasa. In other words, when cortical cells arrive to the cortex, they are not all the same, and they are different aerially, and they are different in terms of layers, even sublayers. Very beautiful studies uh, done that layer five, uh, there are A and B or whatever, and then, so there are different type of actually transcription factor involved uh, in 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 those cells, and you change it, and they are disturbing cortical layers. So cells are determined uh, at the time of last cell division because this is where how evolution works by mutation. And mutation influence daughter cells. And this is where changes, like your first question, come. Cells become different. And if it's repetitious, then you have the same species continuing. If some mutation occurred, then maybe something happened differently in that particular animal. And most of the time it's not good. But if it's good, then it would be reproduced. But for example, just to clarify Gary's question a little more, between different Broadman areas, if you pick out layer 5 neurons, would yeah. they be molecularly distinct? Yes, the different, distinct uh, different uh, for example, motor area sent to the spinal cord, uh, uh, pyramidal cells and pyramidal uh, and sensory just next to it would not go yeah. to the spinal cord. So I wonder, is, do you suppose there's a cortical protomap in the medial ganglionic eminence? so that we could find the, the place where the cells that are going to area 17 are being born and another place where the, area, right. the ones that are going to area 4? Is it's anybody, anybody uh, trying to find a protomap? I don't know. First of all, we need clonal analysis. Um, we haven't done it, so we don't know. It would be a remarkable result if, it, if there was, don't you think? Because well, look at that. that. Those things had developed in parallel the exact same corresponding maps and it would be... Great. But it's a remarkable thing already happened. For example, on the border of ganglionic eminence to the dorsal telencephalon, there is a place where cells are generated, interneurons. This is still ganglionic eminence. And they are CB1, that is cannabinoids, B1 receptor positive, and they go radially to layer 1, then migrate all the way and bypass even, <laughs> even uh, other cortical area, go to hippocampus, then descend in radially and become one type of interneuron. If this occurred for hippocampus, why not occur for visual cortex? Because different type of interneurons and different duty they have in visual compensatory to the motor. There's inhibition in both cases, but different. Some are in layer 4 and then go to layer 5 and make specific connections with layer 3, and the others 
go to level six mostly, something like that. They are different circuitry. So in terms of cortical connectivity, we, we always think of that as being um, driven by afferent input in terms of circuit level connectivity. Um, can, can we kind of uh, use the same principle of intrinsic or predetermined fate to talk about circuit level connectivity that's s specific to you know, cortical columns I mean, or to even Ocular dominance columns and things like that. Oh, yeah. that is different. One is different because two two columns are doing the same thing, just related to one or the other eye. It's a difference between two columns, left and right eye, compared to the visual, say, somatosensor. This is a different uh, uh, duties. Both of them are visual, do exactly the same thing, just left and right eye. So ocular dominance column, if anything, is not a good example of the two areas. This is two same thing for two eyes. But you see, long ago it was Jack Collar, not Max Collar, who was a theoretician, who told me when I proposed a protoman hypothesis that he said, I don't have to do experiment to prove that you will be eventually right. Reason is that it would be not possible to have this billion of people having the same brain if it is a random and at go a trial and error and go to empty sometimes genicular to the project to frontal lobe. We'll have a variety. And in spite of we are all different, our brains are different, but I think surprisingly similar. And so theoretically it would be difficult to make a brain which start from as a tabular as cortex, I mean. And same thing is for spinal cord, by the way. So you have a 30-year perspective on the field. Where, where, where do you imagine things being in the next 30 years? How do, you, how do you see the field progressing? I think it's progressing very well, and I think uh, uh, I envy young people because uh, they, will, they will have a really good chance because they think uh, to understand. And we will understand how brain develops before we understand how it functions. Function is the more difficult especially mind-brain <laughs> issue and so on. But how it develops, it develops from genes and of course interact later on with the environment. We have a lot of tools. It's a lot of work because it's a very complicated. But we have a basic tools. We each day understand better how it is. It's possible to understand, it's just a big project. It's like, you know, we knew how to send men to the moon but if we didn't have a big money for NASA, we wouldn't send it. So here, if we have a, and young people have a support, and society is interested to find out, a lot of can be found out. But it's not easy. It's not going to be one genius discovering everything. So molecular techniques changed everything. What's sort of the next final frontier? Is it nano? Well, the molecular is not in. What do you mean by molecular? It's a gene. Gene go and produce proteins and fractals, and they produce morphology, so anatomy come, and then come physiology, because somebody have to see what they are doing. So it's not going to be one method. It's neuroscience is multidisciplinary method, all the way from gene to behavior, and all people have to work together, and it's possible to work. And as in development, we know how to proceed, but just need patience and resources. And I, I'm optimistic that we will. We'll not understand everything, but uh, 
how human as form, where we come from, we will be able to discover. Where we are going, that we will never discover because this is not known. So those of you who don't have the long view, can you comment on what was that? What you're most excited about in terms of the next level of technology? <laughs> they're excited next about the level of technology they've got. I think at least from my perspective, one of the things that is going to be really interesting to see is the bridge between um, the sort of modern uh, molecular approaches people are using and the classical uh, physiological uh, understanding that, that, that people have developed um, historically. And I think those two things are, are, are starting to come together now and they're really going to come together a lot more in the next 10 years. And I think uh, resolution imaging, that's uh, uh, critical. Right now it's, it's very difficult. As uh, We looked at some of the images today, even with multi-photon, there's a, a limitation to what we can see uh, deep in, in the brain. I think with uh, with respect to fMRI, that's definitely uh, you know a future direction, better resolution to um, identify single cell or single neurons, and also I think bridging the gap between, as you uh, alluded to, nanotechnology, computer science, engineering, and physics. You know the integration of those uh, disciplines will uh, advance neuroscience significantly. Well, thank you for being uh, with us today and talking to us. Uh,